We've been in a sermon series we've called One Another. It's a series where we're looking through some of the New Testament passages that specifically instruct believers on how we should relate to each other. In fact, there's a, there's a word in Greek, alelon, that, that tells us one another. It, it's talking about how we deal with each other. And almost every time it shows up in the New Testament, it is talking about believer-on-believer love, how we're to care for each other, believer-on-believer challenges, believer-on-believer relationships. We've been through a few weeks of this so far, and last week brought us to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to pick up right there where we left off yesterday, uh, last week. I actually said that I uh, kind of ran out of time, and so we paused halfway through one verse. We're going to pick up where we left up in Galatians 6. But before we get there, it needs to be said that Christ established his church on this earth in the face of, in the midst of opposition. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So two things. We see Jesus said, I will build my church. So it's not good luck. I hope this works out with all of you sinners down here while I'm gone. No, he says, I will build it. And second, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, what is anticipated in that statement is that we will face opposition as believers. And that opposition opposition will actually be perennial. It'll be continual. It'll it'll happen from the point at which he established the church until he returns to his bride at the end. In fact, Jesus even gives us some parables. We call them the kingdom-building parables in Matthew chapter 13. And uh, One of the most notable to me is when Jesus says that uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seeds in a field and his enemy came and sowed the seeds of, of weeds. And so the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds will grow together. Well, how long? Until the end of the age. And so we should expect opposition. We should expect the weeds. We should expect the the kinds of uh, uh, attacks that may come against us individually and collectively to happen until the end. Sometimes it may be simple for Christians to be prepared for external attack. All right, what's the world going to try to do to us next? How are we going to try to defend ourselves and truth and fidelity from the kinds of lies that we're seeing around us? But there is another insidious type of attack that can happen, and it is an internal kind. It is the type of attack that stems from sinfulness in the hearts even of believers. And we can have conflict with one another. And so the question we must ask ourselves is, how is it that Christians are to deal with sinfulness even in our own midst? To be sure, we are not to tolerate it in our own hearts. And we are even commissioned by the New Testament to help deal with the sin in the hearts of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to pick up with that thought in mind in Galatians chapter 6, verse uh, 1 through 2. We're going to start back where we were, take a quick look. I'll pray after we read through the text, uh, and then I'm going to unpack those verses for you. We'll read through verses 1 through 5 this morning. You can follow along with me if you have your Bibles open. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray. Father, these are the verses we will be studying this morning, we'll unpacking this morning. Lord, please help me as I seek to serve and love my brothers and sisters here, to share from your word. Help us to be served by it in a way that leads us to love you more, 
to love each other more, to submit more to your word, to, to see things here that maybe we hadn't seen before, and Lord, that that would actually have its effect. It would change us. It would sanctify us, turn us more into the image of your Son. We need that help, Lord. And it's a supernatural help we ask for. And so we ask for you to do this mighty work, one that we can't even do for each other apart from your Spirit. And so we submit to you today and love you and are grateful for this gift of this instruction. Use it to serve not only, not only, Lord, to help alleviate present conflict between believers, in our own hearts, in our own homes, between uh, uh, married brothers and sisters, husbands and wives. Uh, Lord, let not just the present things be massaged out by this, but Father, I pray that this would help us defend against unfaithfulness in our body, the church, in the future. So prepare us to be strong and resilient to worldly attacks in the future, Lord, by the way that you teach us how to deal with sin through this text today. A weighty ask we know, but nothing is too great for you. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Again, we, we made it through the first two verses of this last week when we were, just started out Galatians 6, but I'm going to quickly reread these verses, uh, summarize a little bit of what we did then, and uh, pick right up where we left off. So look at Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Pause right there after verse 1. Now this is pretty plain language, but what we summarized last week was this. We are commanded to confront one another's sin as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to do so in a spirit of gentleness. We're to do so gently. And we are to do so for the purpose of restoration. Sin and the kind of sin that ensnares or entraps a person is a breaking that needs to be mended, and that's our goal, that's our hope. The second verse then said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Picking right up where we left off last week. If the sin is one that has caught your brother and sister, and I, I'm only distinguishing that from nitpickiness that we observe in every imperfect action and activity and behavior in others, but the kind of sin that has ensnared entrap the person. They might not even know they've been trapped by this, but it's a persistent thing. It continues to prove to be a great enemy in their life. If that's observed by the brother or sister, then the loving thing to do is to help them with that burden. Help them in their bearing of their burden, the carrying of that. John Calvin, making a remark about this exact verse, said this, we must not indulge or overlook the sins by which our brethren are pressed down. He's drawing upon the exact same illustration that Paul's using here of burdens. That, that word for burden there means oppressive weight. It's something that somebody would struggle under. If we observe a brother or sister pressed down, we in our love for others, our care for them, must not walk past, overlook, forget, pretend like we don't see it. Ah, oh, not my business, not my business. No, it is your business to help and serve your brother and sister as they are struggling under the weight of sin. But in order to help others with sin, we must see sin for what it is. And it is a burden. It is an oppressive weight. Sin is evil. It is anything that does not conform to the nature and word of God. Sin, to draw on the language of Apostle Paul elsewhere, is a vicious 
slave master. That's what sin is. I want to show you Romans chapter 6, where Paul kind of drew upon that illustration for us. Listen to this. This is Romans 6, 16. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? He continues on in verse 21 of that same chapter. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Acknowledging that being in slavery to sin and bondage because we willingly in our sinfulness offered ourselves to sin. You, uh, you can be my master. I'll do what you say. He says, now those are the things which, of which we are now ashamed. He says in that same verse, for the end of those things is death. Sin is a vicious slave master, and it pays out a wage. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And and the image there then is of of a slave master paying out. You know what you you earn by your works in obedience to that master? Death. When the time for paycheck comes due, when the the food to to care for your soul, your body, so that you can continue in slavery comes due, That wicked slave master pays out death. But the good news is that Paul continues on in that line and says, but the free gift, free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a beautiful truth. If you're not a Christian here today, you need to know that's a a critical point for you to understand in our gospel. You're a sinner. And as a sinner, that means that you have put yourself under the bondage of a wicked slave master, under sin. And the payment is death. That means that you deserve death for your sins. And and, and if you're not a believer today, or if you are a believer today, all of us, by our works, deserve the same thing. We deserve God's just wrath, God's just punishment against us because we have sinned against an all-holy and righteous God. And for those who die in their sins, as Jesus says go to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, separation from God forever in hell. That is the summary. That's what we get for our sins. Hell! But God in his great goodness and his overwhelming grace provides his perfect son to not only live a perfect life, but at the end of that life to go to the cross and to bear the punishment, the penalty due for the sins of all who will ever believe. So that if you look unto him in belief, you turn, repent of your sins, you can turn in faith to Jesus Christ, and by that belief have your sins forgiven in Christ. The punishment due for those sins that are yours will have been paid in him in full. And just as he rose from the dead three days later, you and I can be raised to eternal life. And if you're not a believer today, that is our cry, that's our call to you. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Christ. That's our hope. Sin pays out the wage of death. And sin is a reality that we will have to face for as long as we are in the body. As long as we are of this flesh. In other words, sometimes people look at Christians and they go, well, Christians sin too. Yes, that's very true. And we are to deal with and to manage that, just as Paul is telling us right here, instructing us how to deal with the sin that we're going to have to manage, have to face in this life. And you need to know, brother or sister... Sin is a joy robber, a joy robber. Sin deceives and manipulates, and its lies sound so true so often to our flesh. 
But in the end, the way of sin leads to pain, to misery, and to death. This is why we must not tolerate it in our own lives. And this is why we ought to help our brothers and sisters when we see them under the gladness-crushing weight, the affliction of sin. For the glory of God and the joy of the ones we love. Let me ask this in a question. It might get to the point we're trying to make. Why do you discipline your kids? Why not kids get disciplined at all? Uh, we're right now running into some scenarios with our 18-month-old kid. He's, uh, he's, he's choosing, uh, choosing to be quite difficult uh, to, to train. And so last night, for example, uh, my family went out to dinner on the, on the way home from a trip we've been on. And uh, he's sitting there in his little high chair. And a waitress comes by and just kindly goes, how are you, little guy? And he's got the stranger danger thing going on. And so he immediately turned and went, ah! And he picked up food and threw it at my wife which is a no-no, in case you don't know. He's been doing that. He came into church earlier this morning, and as he was walking on in, Laura kind of had him in her arms and said, said hi to one of our friends, and he saw the friend and went, ah, and grabbed and pulled her hair, Laura's hair. Now, we're going to have to deal with that. But why? Why? Why should we deal with it? See, it can be very easy to go because Laura doesn't like getting her hair pulled. Let's get rid of that because that's behavior we don't prefer. In order for my household to be more tolerable, we discipline our kids. That's not enough. Well, how about in order to get accolades from those around you? Wow, the Sanford kids are really obedient. That's not good. It's not good enough. That's not the reason that we are to discipline our kids, okay? If reasons like those are our only ones that just Whatever will give me more peace, I just want peace. And so if that means I've got to discipline my kid in order to get to that peace, fine. Whatever it takes to get to my goal. Ah, a pleasant household. No. If those are our only reasons, we miss the point of disciplining our children. Discipline of children is to teach them how to resist and overcome sin. That's what it is. And we're practicing that in their little 18-month-old self and up to their 5 and 10 and 15 and 20 and 50-year-old self. And, and we continue doing that our very selves. Why? Well, we know that sin is a joy robber for the sinner. Out of a great love and a hope for joy for my children, I want them to learn to overcome sin for their joy and God's glory. That God would be praised, be honored in their overcoming of sin, and that they ah, would experience the joy of obeying our Lord. Sin robs that joy. It's a burden. It's a weight. It is not good. And even a person who might be so fooled, so deceived by sin in the moment that they don't even see it as a burden, a burden it is. And so one of the ways we are to care for one another is to lift the burdens off of our brothers and sisters. And in so doing, we fulfill the law of Christ. Matthew Henry was a commentator who uh, made a comment on this exact passage at uh, verse 2. He made the point that Jesus calls out the Pharisees because they used, the, the word law shows up here, they used the, word, the law of Moses to push down heavier burdens upon the people around them. While Jesus came in and graciously lifted up the burden of sin off those who follow him. And we are to be like that. We are to fulfill the law of Christ. I said last week, I think that one of the helpful uh, 
things we see in the idea this is a fulfilling of a law, we don't get to choose as a brother or sister, I don't want to obey that law. I don't really want to deal with other people's sin. Ah, let them deal with it themselves. No, we are bound by the law of Christ to lift burdens off of one another and burdens they are. Verse 3 continues. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. When anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is kind of, this is a similar language used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's not, a, it's not a worth statement. Ah, none of you have any worth or value. It's not a value statement like that. If anyone thinks that he is a thing and is not that thing, well, then he's wrong. And the fact that he thinks it when he's wrong proves what? That he deceives himself. Here, Paul is reminding us once again of the folly of pride. The folly of pride, thinking too highly of oneself. In fact, we've covered this already in this series because in Romans 12, we walked through that passage together. Paul kicked right out of the gates, talking about how we relate to each other there. In Romans 12, 3, by saying this, listen to what he said. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment the same idea. In fact, it's not uncommon that when you see the passages in the New Testament that tell us how to relate to each other in conflict, we oftentimes see admonitions against pride and encouragements towards humility because we know that is such a great threat to peace between believers. So consider what this verse is saying. If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. There is a way we ought to think about ourselves. And therefore, there's a way we ought not to think about ourselves. You can think about yourself in a way that's wrong. Should be obvious, but unfortunately to our day, I don't think it is. And we are prone to thinking too highly. If you're going to think wrongly, you're more likely going to think too highly of yourselves. And I argued earlier in this series that even the person who thinks too lowly, because I think a person could do that, uh, uh, kind of, they, they think so little of themselves. Every time they see someone else, they, come, they do the comparison thing, and they think of themselves as less. I, I know that that exists in brothers and sisters. My argument there is that the person who does that is actually still falling into a very similar error of thinking too much, at least in quantity, if not in quality of himself. Well, it's not exactly the same. That kind of thinking still puts you at the center of your thinking more often than you should be. Me occupies the mind too much. Whenever you see somebody else, you immediately think of yourself. When you see yourself in the mirror, you think about how you look and how you feel about yourself. We can lie to ourselves. And that's what Paul says is the problem. He deceives himself. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he's lying to himself. He's deluded. In fact, the word that's used there is the same word that'd be used for a hallucination. He's hallucinating. He's imagining something that does not exist. That's the deception that's being talked about here. Self-deception is a real problem. In fact, we, right now, live in a day of unparalleled, unparalleled in history, self-identity deceptions. People today, as never before, like now, are encouraged to identify however they want. A man can claim to be a woman, 
a woman can claim to be a man, and simply because it's a self-identification, everyone else is to agree with, celebrate, and accommodate. People today can claim to be both genders, or three, or four, or five, on rotation, or all at the same time. And you know this, don't you? It's the madness of our day. And as I'm also sure you know, a person who doesn't want to play along with those self-deceived delusions today and mix and match pronouns at a whim may put his or her job, a reputation, their very livelihood in jeopardy. Laura and I recently had uh, some friends over from our neighborhood. We were having dinner with them, and uh, they were telling us about the challenges they had because of uh, personal experiences with a local elementary school, local elementary school here in Utah. Teachers at that school have recently been trained that they must support the self-identity of choice for any elementary age child in their class. They must accommodate a child who wants to identify as anything he or she wishes up to and including a child who wants to identify as an animal, mythological or otherwise. I read an article recently about a movement amongst some archaeologists who when they unearth some bones from an ancient human want to try to not identify the gender of that skeleton because we simply don't know how the ancient person identified. All this may sound so ludicrous and you may be very familiar with this folly if you look around at what's happening in the world. But honestly, once you've abandoned the actuality of self-deception, then there's no reason a person can't identify however they want. In other words, if you cast away the category of self-deception, a person cannot deceive themselves in their mind. There's no reason you wouldn't fall into that folly. But if self-deception exists, then how do we know where to aim it? How do we know what tests to employ to determine whether or not I'm deceiving myself or not, right? That's the question. And if you don't have an objective standard of truth, then even the person who might give a nod or lip service to the idea of self-deception has no real means of keeping it in check. So the world says, whatever a person thinks of himself must be true. What's more, kindness and decency then demands that we agree with their assertion. And even if they are wrong, it's still kinder to agree with them for now. Because whatever comes into the mind of a person regarding the self must be true. And this has toggled back and forth to opposite ends of a pendulum swing in our culture. Brothers and sisters, the Bible declares definitively that we can be self-deceived. Look at what it says in Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. A fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. The Bible warns that a person, and, and check this out, the Bible warns that a person, even a Christian, can fall to the errors of self-deception. And while you and I may not be at risk for waking up tomorrow morning, looking in the mirror and self-identifying as a polar bear, we are very much at risk of thinking too highly of oneself. Are we not? And so we're warned against this. Don't be like the person being warned against in Proverbs. Ah, whatever anybody else says, whatever objective standards out there, it doesn't matter. What I think about myself is true. No, you're a fool if you do that. 
If I think of myself as something when I'm nothing, I am a deceiver of self, the Bible would tell us. You and I need to have a time in the word of God to regularly wash the word truth over us, to bathe in this objective standard so that we can test ourselves against this. And what we also need is brothers and sisters who will do the same. Those who are around us who will help us to think rightly about ourselves. Think rightly. You may be self-deceived. And if you get brothers and sisters around you who do this time, who spend time in the Word daily and pray for you and, and, and test themselves against this and then observe the things they see in you and then help you see what is true in you, that's a guard. You know, I, I, I think I'm a good listener. I think I'm kind to those people around me. I, I think my life conveys the gospel wherever I go. I, I, I think I'm known as a hard worker. I think I'm known as a man of integrity. We need people around us that we say those things and look to them and say, is that true? I, I think that, I want that to be true, but is it, brother? Is, is that true? Am I deceiving myself? Am, am, I, am I aligning with what the word says here? I had a sergeant major once in the Marines. I didn't know him personally very well, but I think that he was a believer. He once gathered all the troops together and said a whole bunch of things to try to encourage us in character and integrity. I thought it was a great speech. But one line that he said there, I've never forgotten since he said it, he may have borrowed it from someone else. But he said, your integrity is not what you say it is. That stuck with me. Because I think that's biblically sound wisdom. The reason that statement, I think, is wise is because it fits with what the Bible says. You can say all you want about your character, your integrity, just like the politicians who will tell you how wonderful they are and how bad all of their opponents are. Your integrity is not what you say it is. Your integrity ultimately is what God says that it is. And if you want to determine whether or not your perception of self is true, you may need those around you to help you see it. You know, if you struggle with pride, thinking too highly of self, well, I guess you're human. You've got a heartbeat. But trust me, the others in your life can see it. They can see the pride in you. They can see the arrogance in you. And when you're attuned to that with each other, that can be exposed and dealt with. I'm going to read this quote to you from C.S. Lewis. He wrote this in Mere Christianity. I, I, I quoted him again when I talked about pride earlier because he's done so much good work on this and helping uh, clarify. My brother C.S. Lewis said this, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride, and the virtue opposite to it is called humility. I think that rings true too. We need brothers and sisters in our lives who are going to tell us what's true about ourselves. Because they're not even testing on their own standards. They are looking to the word as we are looking to the, world, word, the word and trying to determine what is true. So what does Paul offer to, to this, as a solution to this problem of thinking wrongly about the self, being self-deceived? What's the solution that he gives here? Look at verses 4 through 5. But let each one test his own work. So the problem, self-deception. How do we deal with that? Let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. 
handful of questions can arise if you're just reading through this quickly and wondering, well, what, what does he mean? It sounds like he just told us to not think too highly of yourself. And now he's like, but go ahead and boast in yourself in this way. Whoa, hold on. Paul, help me. Help me understand what's going on here. Let's unpack it together. First, he says, let each one test his own work. And before we just quickly run over the but let each one, let's just consider that. This is like we saw earlier in Romans chapter 12, where he appealed to everyone, that everyone among you ought not think too highly of self, right? So this isn't the kind of thing that he's going, hey, occasionally you might run into a rare believer who struggles with this. And so for those three or four people you'll ever meet, you need to do this. No, no, no. This is a all y'all kind of passage, right? Let each, each one test his own work. This is something all of us should be doing. Test our work. The Greek word for, for test here is dokimatso. It's to test or examine. It's prove. Sometimes it's helpful to look in the original language there to try to understand, like, what does he mean by test here? It's to scrutinize. It's to, to see whether a thing is genuine or not. In fact, that exact same word is used in 1 Corinthians 11, and we use it when we're talking about communion every week. Let one examine himself. Test your heart. See if you have peace of heart to come before the, the elements before the Lord and proclamation of the gospel that morning or not. This is as with metals. Peter will use the same word in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes it like this way. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, this is why the grieving of trials is upon the believer, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold than per that perishes though it is tested tokimatsu, by fire may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A, he's using that illustration of, of, of the refining fire that brings the dross up out of, of, of gold that's been mined out of a rock. That's a testing to determine if something is genuine, to separate the wheat from the chaff kind of thing. That's the kind of thinking that's going on here. Let each one test his own work. Scrutinize that. Put pressure on it to determine what is true. You are to do this with what? Your own work. I don't think this is works of the law. This isn't referencing the works of Moses, the Ten Commandments. This is, this is the kind of work that is your behaviors, your attitudes and actions. What is observed in a believer's activity? Test your own work, the product of what you say is your faith in Christ and in his word. Now, quick note here that it's helpful to consider. In order to test anything, really, or to prove something, presupposes an external standard. So if you're imagining, you're imagining a, a teacher collects a bunch of tests, multiple choice, a teacher needs a master key, that, the legend, that kind of gives the, the answers. Like the answer key is then compared against the others. You go, yeah, you got this wrong, this wrong. That has to happen. You're testing against them. That's what's presupposed with that idea. If you were to test your life against your own standard, you'd be right back in the same place you started and you'd be in the same error that verse 3 warned us against. The testing here then is not consider for yourself your own work. No, it's to test that against something objective, something not internal, but external, outside of yourself, namely the nature and word of God. That's what we are to use to test. We must test 
our work, our actions, our thoughts, our behaviors, our attitudes against the word of God. Does that fit? Is that what the Bible says is good to think? If the Bible says it's good, it's good. If the Bible says it's bad, it's bad. It's really simple. We are to test ourselves against God's word. And I've said before, because we can even let our, let, our, let our thinking about the word sometimes become corrupted by our own sinfulness. It's important for us to get others around us so we're not going, well, I, I, I know all of you think that the word for bad means bad. I think it means good. And so therefore, I'm going to be bad because that's good, right? You can imagine a person doing that. And it's why we must test outside of self, even outside of my own individual, personal, privatized interpretation. I need a body of people around who observe what I do, what I say, how I live, are willing to press against the sin that they see there, bear the burden even when I'm like, no, I'm fine, I like it, I like it. No, you don't. You need to get this off. You need those people in your life who are going to do that with you, tell you rightly what is true. Those who do that with the word of God opened and not just because they don't prefer that negative behavior or action in you. It bugs me. I don't really like it. I'd rather my friends be this way. No, God is not honored. And that's the way we're to approach these tests. Let each one test his own work. Test his own work. And then, this is the weird part, I think. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. First, just to recognize here, the word for boast here is to glory and rejoice in, have confidence in. That's kind of the, the range of that word, what's, what's in mind there. So what should make you rejoice if there's something to rejoice in? The fact that your brother fell, so you're higher. Or that compared to Christ, you've done something right or honoring. To say it simply... Paul is offering yet another warning against comparing ourselves to others. Do not compare your work with theirs and let that comparison become your ground for boasting. I'm better than that guy. As, as long as what I do is a few steps ahead of him, I'm good. No. Like you, have you heard this kind of ism before? I've heard this cultural kind of line. Uh, when you and your buddy are out hiking and you confront a, a charging bear, angry bear comes at you, you don't need to be able to outrun the bear. You just need to be able to outrun your buddy. You heard that one? That's the idea. Just, who cares about that? Just if you're a little bit faster than him, you're good. Bear snacks on him, you get away. But in the church, we are to care more for the other than for ourselves. We are to think better of others. We are to, using Paul's language elsewhere, consider others more significant than ourselves. Okay? Earlier in our marriage, Laura and I would get into arguments, and in the heat of those arguments, sin would begin to arise more and more and kind of become uglier and uglier as the, as the argument commenced. And in our immaturity, we didn't know how to manage that very well. and We kept kind of pushing each other up to be more sinful in the arguments and getting things getting out of control. And I, I would find myself working hard to just stay a, he, a little bit ahead of her, a couple steps ahead of her in holiness. In, in other words, if she was at a point where she was going to lose control, I didn't need to not lose control. I just needed to not lose control as much as she was losing it. Just be a little bit calmer than her. And then I'd win. So I thought, because 
Well, I would never have said this out loud. I've never have counseled anybody in this. The way that I thought about it, wrongly, wrongly, was that, okay, this is obviously sin's going on. I can tell that's obviously taking place. She's way worse than I am, obviously, right here. But as long as in the heat of the moment I act a little bit more righteous than her, then after it's all said and done and the dust has settled and God says, you guys all done with your tantrum? Okay, here, let me give you your grade. And I see that I got a D minus and she got an F. I go, ha, beat you. And again, I, don't, I would never have said it out loud. I would never have encouraged anyone else to think that way, but I did. I did. I, and, and as long as my outward behavior was kept just in check enough that she was worse than me, I could feel righteous. I was doing exactly what this verse tells you not to do. My reason to boast was in her folly because around her, in that heat of that moment, I looked like the righteous of the two. I was wicked. The Lord humbled my heart and corrected my thinking in that. No one won. I didn't win. She didn't win. It wasn't for God's glory. It wasn't for his honor that I did that. It wasn't so that it would help my marriage. It, didn't, it wasn't so that I would serve her well or crush my own sin. None of those things. It was self-serving. But you know what God taught me through that? He doesn't grade on a curve. God does not grade on a curve. And as long as I was thinking of a comparison between me and the other, and as a pastor, I could do this too. I could get in arguments with other people, and as long as I remain just a little bit holier in my response than them, I look like a hero. Did everybody notice how bad that guy was acting? It's wicked. Our boasting, our, our, our gratitude for the Lord providing enough grace to keep us from utter and ab abject folly in that moment. That should be the ground. Not, well, they're, they're worse. They're worse. So, whew, I'm doing okay. No, it doesn't work that way. God does not grade on that curve. Husbands, you need to know this about yourselves. I, I don't know if you've ever thought that way, but you need, you need to be careful about this. You are chiefly responsible for your own thoughts and activities in the moment of a fight. Wives, same. You are, you are chiefly responsible for how you are acting in those moments. Brothers and sisters, amongst those within the church, when there's conflict going down, this can't be you. You can't be doing this. Well, as long as I'm just a little bit better than them, I'm okay. No. We have written into our membership agreement here at the church that we pursue maximal holiness. And we, I love that language because, because what, what it is, is it, it's a pursuit of, no one's attained this. Nobody will attain this. We are chasing down the perfect example of Christ. None of us will attain that in this life due to our wickedness and our imperfections. But we want to set ourselves to maximal holiness, not just one step better than the last guy. We don't even want just the gold medal after the race because we ran our slowest in a year, but we beat the second place guy. No, we want to maximally use our life, have all the days and moments and things in us to be leveraged by God for his glory. And that should have been our focus all along. As believers... The goal is not to just be a little bit better than the other, but without comparison, without thought of, without gauging the other's activity versus mine. No, between you and the Lord, can you say, 
God, thank you. Thank you for the grace you've given to me to, just, to have just enough control in this moment, to not fall into the, that sin that I once fell into so often. It's not about the neighbor. It's not about the brother or sister. It's about you and God in those moments. Have peace with him. For each one of you, each will have to bear his own load. For each will have to bear his own load. The word for load here is different than the word for burden used a couple verses earlier. That burden was oppressive weight. The word for load here means a soldier's knapsack or backpack. So yes, it's a load. It's, a, it's something to carry, but, but, but it's, it's something that we are to do as a duty before the Lord. I don't think this is chiefly talking about sin, so pick up the burden of your sin. No, this one is saying we each have to bear our own load. We're going to have our unique set of circumstances and struggles and obstacles, and by progress through those things, as the Lord sanctifies us, we bring him glory. Pick up your own load. Carry that. In in other words, again, this is built right here. Four and five work together here. Because if this was, well, it's that person's job to stop provoking me to sin. No, no. Look what you made me do. No, no. We don't use those lines as believers. Each will have to bear his own load. I am responsible for what I do in that conflict. I am responsible for what I do in that fight. I am responsible for myself before the Lord in those things. So often as I sit with couples, uh, individuals occasionally, who need just, just counsel, just discipling through something, struggling with something in marriage, it's so easy to see the other person's sin so big that they're like, well, once that person fixes that thing, then finally we can, we can get to a normal point and then I can do the things I'm supposed to do. Then I can, then I can honor the Lord, you know. Once, I've heard this from wives and husbands, I've heard wives who said, like, well, once he acts respectable, then I'll give him respect. No. No. Each one is to bear his own load. We don't do that comparison thing. Well, well once he's picked up his, then I'll pick up my pack. Then, then I'll, once, once, or once she does her loving things she's supposed to do, then I'll do my providing things I'm supposed to No. You've got a load. You've got a pack as a soldier in the army of God to carry, pick it up. Pick it up and carry it. I think it's quite easy to see those burdens in our lives or the things that get in the way of us doing that, which will try to help us please and honor God. But Lord, I'm trying to honor you. I'm trying to please you with my life. But that person continues to provoke me into sin. They're not doing their part, and so I'm dropping my pack. No, no. Us being sanctified is what brings God glory carrying the weights through that circumstance. God, he might even fashion those conditions in our lives as the means by which he's going to conform us to the image of his beloved son. Rather than comparing the baggage you have to carry over the baggage that someone else has to carry, each one will have to bear his own load. In all things, of course, we are to honor God first and foremost. This must be our aim. This must be our aim in all things, and it precedes and must be the foundation under everything we've yet covered. You know, I think that what happens so often is we prepare to confront and challenge, which is what came out of the gates. Galatians 6.1. If you don't experience fruit of the Spirit, you experience the fruit of the flesh in believers around you. I'm coming from Galatians 5 into the beginning of 6. When you see that, if any of you is caught in any sin or transgression, those who are spiritual among you must... Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. When he comes into how to deal with that sin within the church, 
I think what might happen is so often we prepare to challenge the sin in someone else. Let, let's say you're in that situation. Okay, I've seen something. I think the Lord wants me to help uh, to confront this. I've done the hard work to ensure as much as my imperfections, I'm able to get the log out of my own eye so I can see the speck and go serve my brother or sister. Sometimes we project the results. We anticipate a particular response and then build up a defense against that imagined response. In other words, this whole plan gets usurped in our minds because we are just trying to find a way to change the other person. How, okay, Lord, okay, I got to do that. that. That's my highest priority in this is to make sure they change. But if that's our highest aim, then we're aiming at the wrong target. Bear your own load. Change you first. Consider, just ask yourself this question. Have you ever, have you ever thought like, man, oh, if I could just change this one thing about my wife or my husband or oh, that other brother or sister in Christ or oh, that guy at small group who never shuts up. If you, if you ever think of that, like if I could just change that one thing in that person, think about this. What if you could change that person's behaviors and activities and attitudes? What if you could? Would you really want that kind of power? Do you think so highly of yourself that you trust yourself so much you'd only ever exert your influence in a way that pleased God and not you? You see? If on the other hand, the aim is not just to get that person changed because that person's got something, but the Lord is going to use the act of your serving another person in their sin to work on you. If our aim is to please God and not just change other, others, then we can succeed. We must aim at pleasing God more than anything. That's our chief goal in all of this. And I think that's a little bit of what he's scratching at in verses four through five. This is between you and God, and yourself alone. It's not just about, God, look who I changed over here. No, I, I was working on you, and you helping that brother or sister through that sin. So much more could be said about this. I want to conclude by this. Pride is the great destroyer of relationships, and it can either come in through the front door or it can climb in through a window. But however it gets in, it is a destructive force. So thinking too highly of oneself, the guy who you look at, the woman you look at, you're like, man, she just thinks of herself as so much better than everybody. The, that's overt arrogance. That's front door pride. That's the obvious, oh, what's a prideful person? Oh, the one who thinks of themselves too highly. And we've already walked through passages. We were warned against that. But the other side of that, the pride coming through the window is just thinking too little of others. And it's not exactly the same thing, but it nets out to have the same result. Because if you don't, you, you can either move yourself in your mind from this position up a few notches, better than everybody else, or you can move everybody else down. Whichever way it works, you end up a little bit higher. You get it? You get what I mean by that? And so a warning that I would offer up that I think floats around all the passages we've been covering up until this point, and I think is certainly here in Galatians 6, Brothers and sisters, choose to think well of others. That's, in that illustration, it's slamming that window shut, right? 
And in many ways, it bars the front door from pride getting in that way too. Choose to consider others more significant, more, more highly than yourself. Choose to think well of your brothers and sisters. Few things, I think, do a better job of disarming a prideful heart than this. And I think it might be one of the very best ways to see peace in a church just flourish is when people choose to think well of each other. You know what's a really obvious way to tell if someone's thinking well of someone is if they're speaking well of someone, right? Have you ever interacted, brothers, have you ever interacted with another Christian brother who talks poorly about his wife? That's icky, right? Man, if that's what you'll say, what's actually inside? Because sisters, the same thing. On occasion, I get a chance to sit with uh, other pastors. We talk about ministry and doctrine and what the Lord's doing. And uh, sometimes we'll talk about the body that God has given us to serve. And I, I, I want you to know, I love celebrating that I get to be a pastor of the Mission Church there. And occasionally, I'm sitting with another brother in Christ who says, Ah, those people in my congregation... They're, they don't know anything. They're always complaining. It's just a nitpick. I hear that kind of stuff sometimes from other pastors, and it just grates against me. Why? Because how can you speak of somebody like that if you're supposed to think well of them? In order for us to do the things we're being told to do here, we cannot either put ourselves higher or others lower. Again, that same net result. We must choose to think well of others. We must choose to speak well of others. So many times I've helped counsel brothers and sisters. My own heart about these things, when somebody wrongs you, genuinely wrongs you, they did something wrong, they shouldn't have done. It is so easy for us as believers. Uh, so easy, let's say that. So easy for us as humans. Believers struggle with this too. But just as people, to then start nitpicking and demonizing every little thing if we observe in that person's life. You know, you know that, now that I think about it, yeah, about a month ago, he kind of looked at me funny. Yeah, yeah, actually... You know, I actually observed something else he did. You know, come to think of it, I'm pretty sure he sacrifices chickens to Satan when no one's looking. Like, guys, slow down. Once you let your mind start going down that crazy path, that, that's, that's only kind of joking, what I was just saying there. Because you really can get there. You really can get there, quick. If you let yourself start thinking poorly of others, Satan will push you down that slide. It will, it will happen, and it will just snowball out of control. One of the things that I, I appeal to people on when they start that kind of train of thought is pause, pause, pause. What are some really good things you've observed there? And sometimes it's really hard. How about this? If it's a brother or sister in Christ, Jesus loves them. How, how about this? If that's a brother or sister in Christ, those sins you hate, Jesus died for Assume the best of your brother or your sister. Assume the best. Give the benefit of the doubt. Don't talk poorly. Use your words to build one another up, not tear down. Some people are going to choose to think poorly of you. Don't return the favor. Have you ever been with a brother or sister and this is in your heart or in theirs as you're kind of chatting about things and trying to get to the bottom of some junk in your heart or their heart? And assumptions start coming in. Why? Man, that, that family member, that neighbor, that, that fellow church member, 
they wronged me in something, and I, and I just found out that yesterday they went together with a whole bunch of people out to dinner. I, I bet you they were talking about me. I bet they're planning something. Assume the best. Were you there? No, I wasn't there, but I know it. I know it. I know it because it's happened before. You know what? So what? Assume that the Lord really is working there. Expect that God actually is sanctifying them like he's sanctifying you. You quick to accuse. (laughs) The Lord has so been good to us. He has graciously overlooked so many of our sins. There's not been one minute of one day in your life that you have not been under the judgment that you justly are due because of your sins. His mercy is so great. We ought to provide the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to test our own work. Not compare what the others are doing. Choose to think well of them. Choose to think better of them. Not demonize. Well, Rich, what, 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 if, what if on the occasion the Christian, that other person, is getting, their sin's getting a little out of control and they actually are going to hurt me? Well, then get hurt. Get hurt. Better to be vulnerable. Better, wouldn't you rather be defrauded, using 1 Corinthians 6 language, it'd be better for you to be defrauded than to deal with issues in a way that doesn't honor God. Then get hurt. Do you not think the Lord will use that for great good? Brothers and sisters, our perfect God has overlooked our sins. He has given us so much love and grace, and he loves your fellow brother and sister and spouses and neighbors. He loves your family members who are not acting like Christ the way they ought to act like Christ all the time. And We have to have a right mind about how to deal with sin in the church. And not in a way that's dishonoring and heavy-handed and not in a way that overlooks and leaves the burdens up to somebody else. We are to avoid the ditch on both sides of the road. And whenever there's confusion or question of exactly how to do this, give more love, more grace, more mercy abounding. Don't let the Lord avenge any wrong. And this is a great kindness. As we conclude our time here in Galatians 6 right now, we're about to go to the Lord's Supper. We're about to share in this meal that represents Christ's broken body and his shed blood for what? For what? For sins of believers. All the people in your life who claim the name of Christ, who have been redeemed, and who sin against you, now or ever in the future. When you come together in community and have communion, there's something especially significant about it when we consider that we're in relationship with others who will inevitably have sin that we need to confront and sometimes sin against us and that we might sin against them. And we are to partake of this meal saying, thank you, Lord, for forgiving the sins, not just those sins and those brothers and sisters of mine who constantly do bad things, but my very own sins. Thank you for pouring that punishment out on your son and not on me. I want to pray and close our time in our our, our sermon. And uh, as, as I say amen this morning to that, I'm going to invite everyone up forward to grab the elements
they're kind of in double stack cups. Bring them back to your seat and we'll take of those elements together. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, the only way that you have peace with God, you know, is because of what Christ has done on the cross, his finished work there. No, thank you for Jesus, I did a few more works to get the rest of the way. But in Jesus alone, as a brother or sister, you are welcome to come forward. If you're not a believer today and you're thinking, I'm not even sure exactly what that means, this is a proclamation. It is proclaiming, the Lord has died for my sins. That's what it's saying. And so if, if, if you can't say that today, you're not a believer today, then just wait and let the moment pass. And we hope the day would come that you will be able to cry out and say, the Lord has paid for my sins on the cross. And then join with us in this meal every week until the Lord returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your teaching in the Bible. You, you don't sugarcoat you care about the things we need to know about, and you have laid these out, and these truths are so timeless. They're the things that we've, had to know, that we've had to know as believers since the first generation of Christians, all the way till now, and for however long it takes before your son returns. We thank you for this word. We pray that you would help us to learn how to deal with these things better, help our relationships at the Mission Church to flourish, and wherever else we go after this, Lord, that our relationships, our Christian uh, our relationships will flourish in and through conflict that is necessary for us to become more like your perfect son. Lord, help us to do so humbly. Help us to think rightly about helping one another with their burdens and rightly about our own burdens and load we ought to bear. And in all things, let us never neglect to remember for a moment that our sins have been paid for in Christ and his perfect sacrifice on the cross. Let us celebrate that now as we take communion together. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.